and we can do that. I think we can all agree this morning that sometimes life is tough. Would we agree to that? Life is sometimes tough. A pastor stopped at a yard sale recently to buy a used lawnmower for the church. And there was a kid who was doing his best to make the sale that day. The preacher pulled the rope several times to crank the mower, but it wouldn't start. The boy said, you have to kick it and cuss a few words at it in order, in order for it to crank. The preacher said, son, I'm a preacher. I can't do that. It's been years since I've used a cuss word. And the kid said, just keep pulling on the rope. It'll come back to you. The world in which we live is in such chaos that you may think it's enough to make a believer use a few cuss words from time to time. I'm not saying do it. Sometimes you might feel like you'll want to. But this morning there's some good news for us today in the book of Second Thessalonians. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Thessalonians. We'll get there in a minute. All a person has to do is turn on the TV, any news channel, or get on social media, or open up a newspaper, and we can see that there's a lot of uneasiness in our world today. Be it about the high cost of health care and insurance, or the lack of respect for life, or doing the best we can to keep our children safe and many other things that make us uneasy today in our world. So how can we stand firm in the midst of an unstable world? Well, as bad as you might think that our world and our conditions are right now, I think Paul and his friends in Thessalonica had it much worse than we did. They had no health insurance. They had no hospitals, only people who said they were doctors, but they really weren't. They had a Roman emperor who was killing Christians by the thousands. They were losing their jobs when they chose to follow Jesus. Someone had produced a fake letter from Paul saying that Jesus had already returned. And in the verses at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul wrote them that Jesus hadn't returned yet. And when he comes, he will win the final victory. But until that happens, he encouraged them to stand firm in an unstable world. So if you have your Bibles opened already to Second Thessalonians, go to chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're going to be reading in verse 13, beginning in verse 13. But we ought to always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth 
or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God of our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. Encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Great words from Paul this morning. And here in these five verses, Paul reminds us of a few things. Number one, he says, stand firm. And then he says, hold on to the word of God. We need to do that today, don't we? We need to stand firm and hold on to the word of God in our lives. And as we stand firm and as we hold on to the word of God, Paul also says there are four unshakable truths to which we must hold on to in this life. First one is that God loves us unconditionally. Verse 13 says that, but we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord. If there is one common truth throughout the Bible, it is that God does exist. But after that truth is believed, another truth is that God who created everything has chosen to love us. Have you ever Googled something? May ever Google anything? Get on your computer, your phone, and just Google something. If you would Google the phrase, the love of God, there are over 1.2 billion links to the phrase, the love of God. Gigi's going to get her phone and check it right now. <laughs> Much of the love we experience, though, from people is conditional, isn't it? Conditional love is based upon performance. You have to earn it. A person might say, if you will love me, if, or they may say, I will love you if you love me, or I will love you if you obey me, or I will love you if you will make me feel this way or that way. But aren't we glad today that God's love is unconditional? God doesn't love us because we're especially lovable. He loves us because he is loving. In other words, God doesn't love us for who we are. He loves us for who he is. Why does God love you? Why does God God love me? Because God is love. God loves us because God loves us. God knows more about us than anybody else. He knows every mistake we have ever made in our lives. And every every mistake we will ever make. And yet he still loves each and every one of us with an unconditional love. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. If a person were to study the Koran or any other book besides the Bible like the Koran and compare it to the Bible, there is no way a person can claim the God of the Bible is the same as Allah of Islam. In the Koran, the love and approval of Allah is based upon human performance. If a person is faithful to follow the five pillars of Islam, Allah will choose to allow them to enter into paradise at death. But Allah doesn't like the infidels and commands the Muslims to oppose infidels to the death. 
The Bible teaches that God loves the whole world. He loves everyone in the world, the good, the bad, the ugly, all people. And there's nothing I can do to make God love me anymore. And there's nothing I can do to make God love me any less. We see throughout the Bible, the example after example of the love of God. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus said, God is the good shepherd and he who is the 99 sheep safe in that sheepfold. And when one lost sheep has wandered away, what does he do? He goes and finds that one lost sheep and leaves the 99. Doesn't matter a whole lot unless you're that one sheep that he goes after. God loves us so much that if we had been the only lost person on this earth, he would still come seeking for each one of us. That's good news today. That shows us that God loves us. Jesus said that God is the kind of father who even loves the disobedient, rebellious child. We see that over in Luke chapter 15. When the son broke the father's heart. By asking his dad to give him back what he had coming, had coming to him in his will. And the son took the money and he runs off to the distant country and squandered the wealth in righteous living. But when that broken down, good for nothing son comes home, God is like that father who runs to embrace that child. He puts his arms around him and loves him unconditionally. You ever feel like that, son? Or we go to the book of Hosea and it teaches us that God is like a husband who has a wife who deserts him and she goes off and becomes that prostitute. And then she becomes so corrupt that she ends up as a slave who is bought and sold like a piece of meat. And yet that husband gathers all the money that he has and he goes and he buys back his wife. And he loves her and he restores her to purity and righteousness. Ever felt like that before? God loves us. We need to hang on to the truth that God loves us unconditionally. We can never let go of this important truth. Second thing that we see here is that God chooses us. Also in verse 13 it says, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. There is great truth in the Bible that we sometimes miss. But long before we choose to believe in Jesus, which is an absolute must for our salvation, God has chosen each one of us first. Psalms 139 says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I remember as a kid in our neighborhood, we loved to play football. The two best players or mostly the old, the two older ones were the captains and they would choose sides of the teams. And us neighborhood kids, this was a serious game of football and being picked was as serious on that day as the NFL draft was to the players that get picked at the NFL draft. Would we be chosen to be on a team? 
When would we be chosen to be on the team? We weren't shy. We would hold up our hands and we would scream, choose me, choose me, choose me. And the first two captains had that special status just below those captains of the team. And when they were chosen, they would walk and they would stand behind their captain and they would converse of who else are we going to pick for our team? And as a group of the remaining boys got smaller and smaller, that nervousness of those boys grew bigger and bigger. And we would all say, oh, pick me again, pick me. And then there was only two guys left and we would all end up saying, okay, you can have him, I guess, or I'll take him. He'll be the bench warmer, you know. And those who were chosen last would hang their heads and join the team and their dreams of athletic greatness on the day were just melted away. But the good news today is that God chose us first. He chose us before we were even born. He chose us before Jesus even came to die for us. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given in the one he loves. God chose you and you and me. But we also have to choose whether or not we're going to be on his side or not. The issue of is our will. Our will is there. It's always involved in this process. When a person comes to know Jesus in a personal relationship, there are three factors involved. Always the word of God, the work of the Holy Spirit and the will of the person. When God chose Mary to be the mother of Jesus, we see the beautiful parable of salvation there. God chose Mary. She didn't choose him. The angel Gabriel comes and delivers the word of God to Mary. God told Mary that God had chosen her to give her a, that she was going to have a, give a birth to a son named Jesus who would be the savior of the world. How will this be? Mary asked the angel since I am a virgin. Gabriel told her that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and God would overshadow her. And so here we have the word of God. And then there's the work of the Holy Spirit. But Gabriel wanted to see what Mary had to say. God wasn't going to force her to be the mother of Jesus. And Mary said, may it be done to me according to your word. That was the expression of her will to accept what God was offering to her. I'm here to tell us all this morning that God has chosen each one of us to be adopted into his family. That the word of God, that's how it takes place, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And what is left for us is to say what Mary said that day. God, may it be done in me, to me, according to your word. That's where our will comes into play. God doesn't make us a robot program just to believe in him. He chose us in love. But once he's chosen us to be on his side, he gives us that free will to choose to be on his side or not. The choice 
is up to us. Are you aware that ants that crawl around the ground that we like to step on and pour ant killer around? And Are you aware that when they are born, they are born with wings? But at some point in the early stages of their life, those wings fall off and they live as those insects on the ground that we like to get rid of. But if they would have kept those wings, they would be able to fly in the sky. But for some reason, those wings come off. Sadly, we too often choose to be less than what we are meant to be. What do you choose today? What are you going to choose today? Third thing that we see is that God gives us hope for the future. In verse 16, it says, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. I love those words. Good hope. I remember when there used to be phone books. Do you remember that? Remember phone books? I remember as a kid when if we would ever take trips and we didn't take a lot of them, but when we did and we would stay in a hotel, the first one of the first things I would do, I would get the phone book out. I know it's crazy, right? I didn't have an exciting childhood, you know, just something I had, you know. But I would get the phone books and I would look up the churches and how many churches were in that town. And I remember going through all the phone books as a kid and there's some Really some odd name churches out there. But I'll never forget one of those churches that I saw. And I don't remember where we were at. But it was called Little Hope Church. And that's that a strange name for a church? Little Hope Church? What? That's a terrible name. I thought. I thought at least they could call themselves Hope Church, not Little Hope. Anything, you know, but as little hope. I mean, I think the worst would be no hope church, you know, and I'm sure it might be out there. I don't know, but, but we use that word hope for something that might happen. We say, I hope I get through this traffic light. I hope those A's beat the Tampa Bay Rays today, but we're not sure. But the Bible says the word hope means an absolute certainty. A few years ago, there was a movie called Hope Floats. And in this movie, after a failed relationship, a mother and a daughter returned to where the mother grew up and hoping to begin a new life for her and her daughter. But may I remind us this morning that hope isn't something that drifts into and out of our lives. In fact, hope is an anchor to hold tight to today. Hebrews chapter 6 says, We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. As we read through the Old Testament and New Testaments, we see that the inner sanctuary of the temple was where the presence of God was manifested. There was a huge curtain separating it from the rest of the world. And we know that the Jewish high priest could enter there only for a few hours one day a year. 
But we also know that when Jesus was crucified, that that curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. And it was his way of ushering us into the presence of God. But why the picture of an anchor entering a place safely? Back in the days of the Bible when it was written, an anchor was usually a big rock with a hole in it. And in the middle of that, they would put a rope and they would tie that rope around that rock. Anchors weren't only used to keep a boat from drifting because traveling on the sea was not an exact science like it is today. Bigger ships often had to, had trouble entering the smaller harbors. And there was a custom that was practiced to ensure that the big ships would be able to arrive safely in the harbor. Sometimes the bigger ships would stop outside that harbor entrance and the anchor was placed in a smaller boat called a forerunner. And then the forerunner with the anchor rowed into the harbor and dropped that anchor into a safe place. And then the anchor line attached to a pulley on the bigger ship was tightened and the ship was literally pulled safely into that harbor. Jesus is our anchor of hope who draws us into the very presence of Almighty God. During the early days of World War II, our nation was reeling after the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. We were fighting the enemies in Japan and Germany, and I've been told that it was tough and a scary time when people had to ration food and other items. It was during this time that Ruth Jones wrote some comforting words that speak to our need for stability in an unstable words. The words are these. In times like these, you need a Savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure. Be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. And the chorus says this. This rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure. Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. Fourth thing we need to do. God gives us strength to stand firm. In verse 17, it says, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, our father, encourage your hearts and strengthen you. In Ephesians 6, Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the mighty power. Then he writes about putting on the whole armor of God there in Ephesians 6. And we know that the point of the armor is to be dressed for battle, is to be able to stand against what comes against us. And in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, Paul says three times, stand. And if you've been in men's Bible study on Wednesday nights, we have learned that when in any scripture writer writes something more than once, what does that mean? We better pay attention. 
He says it three times, church. We better pay attention. Have you ever heard the expression, don't just stand there, do something? I wonder what would happen if we would turn it around when it comes to the life of a follower of Jesus. Don't just do something, stand there. Because the life of a follower of Jesus doesn't start with an action. It starts with the Holy Spirit convicting us and bringing us to a place of belief, standing on God's truth. God's truth always leads to action. But first, we must stand firm on what we believe. When Martin Luther was charged as a heretic by the Catholic Church, he said, here we stand. We do no other. God help us. Gordon Eady once said that if you don't stand for something, you will fail or fall for anything. We have solid truths that we stand up as believers of God today. And while our society keeps refining truth and morality, we must stand firm on the truth of the Bible. And Edward Mode in 1834 said, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. But we don't stand in our own strength today. God is our source of strength. Remember when we were kids, and yes, we've done it as adults, but we used to sing it probably more as kids. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, they are weak, but he is strong. But we never grow up to the point where we no longer need his strength, do we? We are all still weak. And he is still so strong. David writes in Psalm 18, it is God who arms me with strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. You know what an ibex is? An ibex is a small deer that can climb up the tallest mountains and stand in the narrowest of ledges. They can easily scale the heights where not many animals can go. What's their secret in walking that way? They look to see where they put their front feet. And they always put their back feet exactly the same spot where they put their front feet. That's what God wants us to do. How does God make our feet like the feet of the deer? He wants us today to follow in his steps. For when we're following Jesus, the places he steps for us is a safe place to step. 